Tonight on the DTD podcast, the Do the Deed podcast, we have retired Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb. He spent a majority of his life in the military, three years in the 82nd Airborne and over 16 years in special operations. He's now the president and founder of Viking Tactics, and he is also the president of the Stay in the Fight Foundation. So let's get right into it. Crazy Dutch bastard. What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. I don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome back. Tonight, I am so excited about this show. It's been a long time planning, so let's get right into it. Kyle, how are you? I'm doing great, man. I love that music. All those... Uh... All those quotes, man. I start wanted to want to start singing "King of the Road" or something, you know. So take it back, take it back to Glenn Campbell or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, uh, I think that kind of encompasses the show. All those sayings. Uh, so I, I'd like to put those in there. So let let's get right into this. I, I'm super excited to talk to you tonight. So you joined the army in 1986, and I've heard that. You uh, didn't really kind of know what you wanted to do quite yet, but you joined, and then you said uh, once the first day of jump school happened, you loved the military, and there was no looking back after that. So can you kind of give us a little background? I know you grew up in in a a small area, and you knew to get out of there, but I want to hear your reason why you got out of there. Well, I grew up in South Dakota, and I don't want to say South Dakota is a bad place because it's not. It's an awesome place awesome place to live. It's really a great place to grow up. Uh, there wasn't a lot of clutter in my life. It was riding horses and shooting guns. And I don't know, it's kind of the same now, but I don't ride a horse much anymore. But uh, I left there because I was probably too lazy to work on a farm. And I thought joining the army was, you know, I was going to join the army and, and learn skill. And my dad said, the only skill you're going to learn is to kill people. And I'm like, come on, I'm going to learn a skill. You know, I'm going to go in and be a 31 Victor, a tactical communication systems operator and mechanic. And I went in and I learned to kill folks. And uh, <laughs> I guess he was right. Um, but I, I, yeah, when I, when I joined the Army, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I really did not like it when I first started. I was freshly married. I got married at 18, a couple of weeks before I left for the military. So I was, uh, I was homesick. I messed my, missed my new bride and they sent me to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for basic and AIT. And it was, it sucked. And, uh, I'd never seen tarantulas before. I'd never seen armadillos before. I'd never seen scorpions and I didn't see any tarantulas, but I saw scorpions and armadillos and, um, yeah, I, I, I thought the Army pretty much sucked at that point. I mean, I had fun when I went to the range, and they let me fire like 10 rounds, and they said, okay, you're zeroed now. You got to go sit in the shade for two hours, I mean, for two days 
while everybody else gets zeroed and then we'll bring you out here for qualification. So I finally got to go out and do that. That was kind of fun. Uh, made it to Fort Benning for jump school when I got there. Still wasn't digging it during zero week. And then, man, day one of jump school, I met my first, I shouldn't say my first squared away NCO, but the first ones that really stuck with me. And those black hats were, they were just squared away dudes and they knew their job. They were professional. They were physically fit. They were mentally fit. They were good leaders. And I was like, man, these guys are amazing. And, you know, I, I would, <clears throat> if I can add one other thing, I get a lot of, of kids and parents that, that reach out to me, want me to, to help mentor their kids or whatever, to figure out what they're going to do when they go in the army. And I tell every one of them, you're going to go in the army. If you're a dude, go in the army, infantry, unassigned airborne ranger. So that way you go infantry, you get airborne school and you go right to ranger battalion and you can't, I mean, you, I don't think there's a better way to start in the army anyway. Yeah. So I, I, I guess, you know, for all those younger folks out there that are thinking about joining the military, um, if you want to get famous and have cool hairdo, then, you know, become a Navy SEAL. But if you want to travel the world and get in gunfights, I think joining the army, going to the Ranger Battalion, I, one of the Ranger Battalions would be the great, greatest place to start. I never did that. Uh, I was talking to the editor of Guns and Ammo today and he goes, what are, if you could talk to your younger self, what would you tell yourself to do? And that's what I told him. And, uh, I still continually give that guidance to people. You know, if, if you want something flashy, that's not real flashy. You're going to be, you're going to be busting your butt and having to work hard. But anyway, that's, that's kind of how it all started for me. And I, I realized once I got in the military that I loved it. I realized that I, I really liked that everybody was on the same sheet of music, working with the team like that. And then as I continued to grow in the military, I went from 82nd, I went to special forces qualification course to get my green beret there and became a 18 echo uh, special forces communication sergeant. So that meant I had to go through uh, Morse code school and then when I got out of the Q course, I went to Arabic language school and I was actually in Arabic language school when Saddam invaded Kuwait. So uh, I knew pretty shortly that I would be heading over there with fifth special forces group. So I did that. And then after that, I came back and tried out for the unit and went there for most of the time that I had remaining. I did have one other year that I went to first special forces group and uh, was a sniper instructor there, met a lot of great people. And then I came back to the unit and, and, uh, spent the rest of my time there and then retired in, uh, let's see, it was the end of 2007. So I've been out for quite a while now. It's, uh, it doesn't seem like that much time, but man, time flies, you know? Well, you know what I wanted to talk to you about when you're going through your career now, first off, did you ever finish uh, Arabic language school? Yes. Yeah, you did finish did. it. So yep, I did. So did you finish it before you went over there or after you were done, you came back and finished it or how did that work out? No, I was in CIFLIC, they call it. So it was Special Forces Functional Language Course, which meant you you didn't really learn to speak the language. You learned how to teach classes. I mean, you did learn to speak the language, but right. I learned co colloquial Egyptian Arabic and that's not really what anybody that we've ever been in a fight with speaks. They all speak modern standard. So when I first got to Fifth Special Forces Group, right, right out of language school, my son was born on the 1st of September. And two weeks later, we had PCS. We were at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I was on an airplane headed over 
seas and I, I wouldn't get to see my newborn son. I had a daughter as well, but she knew who I was. My son, when I got back, he hadn't, he had no clue who I was. So he was six months old when I returned and, and, uh, yeah, I, I learned to speak Arabic. I wouldn't say it was anything great. It's kind of funny. I was just up at uh, SIG Academy teaching, and a month and a half ago, I was teaching a class, and there was this big Arab dude in the class, super nice guy, and and I found out he was Egyptian, and I was like, this dude's Egyptian. I can I can lay out someone. some of my awesome <laughs> Egyptian Arabic, you know? Yeah. So I started uh, – I started rapping with him in a, in colloquial Egyptian Arabic, and he's like, "Man, you you I mean, you sound like you're from Egypt." And I said, "Well, all my instructors were, so I guess finally that paid off." But it never, I mean, it, it did pay off when we were doing uh, interrogations and, and things like that. I was able to kind of think a step ahead, as long as they didn't, you know, as long as they didn't start speaking about politics or anything too much. If they stuck to religion and how much a cup of coffee was, I was pretty good to go at that point. But uh, yeah, you know, and I think uh, I'll tell you, you know, a lot of folks, they don't really care to learn a foreign language, but I will tell you, I, I really wish that I could do more of that. I mean, both my kids speak Spanish. I have a son-in-law that is Hispanic and, you know, my grandkids, I suppose they understand Spanish. They don't really speak it, but um, learning Arabic, was awesome. I think any language that you can get out there and learn. And really the only way to do that is to be submersed in that language. You can't, you know, if you go to language school in high school every day, you're not, you're going to suck if you go to France or anywhere down South. And I mean, you, you have to go and live it where you have to depend right. on that language. Both of my kids were able to do that. They did programs where they were immersed in it. And it, it, that's, that's the way to do it. You know, do you think it, it helped you over in the middle East? Cause you've done quite a bit of tours over there. Do you think it helped you out uh, having that language? I would say at, at some points it did when I was with fifth group, it definitely did the, what little bit I got to use it and all those fifth group guys, you know, they're either going to speak Persian Farsi or they're going to speak uh, some form of Arabic. And if you're one of those guys, it's yeah, it's a huge benefit to have that language when you're in the unit there's not a i wouldn't say there's a huge benefit there there are some missions that you can go on where having a language is uh is important i just feel like culturally if even if you can only even if you only know 20 words of somebody's language and you try you immediately have broke that ice and if they see that you're honestly trying to do that you know i hear these guys say well, they all speak five, five, six, and seven, six, two. Come on, dude. <laughs> That's that sounds great, but I've tried speaking those languages, and they don't understand that either. Um, I think that it's you know some people will say that. Well, I don't care about those people because they're all Arabs. Well, you should care about them because they're human beings, just like we are. And there's a lot of good people over there. Yeah, we're hunting down and trying to kill the terrorists. But in the meantime, there's millions of really good people that live beside those terrorists. Um, I went on a, a, a mission trip kind of as a security assessment kind of guy. But I went into Jordan and we were there uh, trying to help displace Christians that left Mosul, Iraq. Imagine that. These are the people that were 
to the left and the right of the doors that we were blowing off in the middle of the night. And they were great people. They were just like us. I mean, yeah, their skin color might be a little bit different or their eye color and the language that they speak. And they might have uh, a little bit better chow on the menu than if you grew up in South Dakota, but they're, uh, they're, they're just like us. They're, I, I mean, they're absolutely like us. So I think, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but I guess the bottom line is, you know, try to try to talk to folks. And if you can do that, you can, you can understand a whole lot more. They'll give you a whole lot more to help you with your mission set. If, if you're actually trying to be friends with them and, and understand their culture. Well, you know, I want to pose kind of a, I guess you would say it's a philosophical question. Then when you, when you speak about that, because you, you say that people, don't necessarily want to learn um, the culture, the language. They think that they can just push through it as maybe as a, just a blunt object. But I feel like a lot of the problems that we have today, not just in the Middle East and the world, is people don't want to talk to each other anymore. People don't want to listen to each other anymore. And so I'm asking you in all of your time overseas and things, how do we push past that and get back to an understanding of where we've got to understand each other before we can move forward? Well, I, 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 it's going to be a tough one, I believe, because um, you might find this hard to believe, but I'm a conservative. <laughs> I would never have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things that I've, I think is, is hard for people is they, they have this preconceived notion about us. And Quite honestly, we have a preconceived notion about the other side of the spectrum, too. Um, everybody wants their kids to be happy and healthy. And, I, and I'm not just talking about Americans. I'm talking about, you know, you go to Mogadishu, Somalia in 1993, and they're fighting a famine. They're doing anything that they can to feed their children. What's wrong with that? What, what, you tell me what is, what's wrong with doing anything possible to feed your children. I mean, I, I would tell you this, if you won't do anything possible to feed your children, you're a dirtbag. I mean, and, and in America, we have a lot of dirtbags that don't care about feeding their children. I'm trying to remember this gal's name. There's a, there's a couple really awesome gals out there. One is, uh, oh, what's her name? Omar. Uh, Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar. I, I'm glad you brought her up because someone spoke to you on the news about her and the, the statements that she made about the soldiers over in Mogadishu, which she had already left. Her clan was already out of Mogadishu by the time Black Hawk Down happened, correct? Yeah, yep. And so they, they brought you on to talk about it, and I, I thought it was pretty interesting how you said that she is, I think the most poignant part of what you were saying there was that she is living the, the big life now because of coming over here and the abilities that she was given by coming to the United States and the freedoms that we have over here um, to trash what we had done over there. I think she said we had killed like a thousand people that day and the numbers were just inflated and crazy. I wish we killed that many of them. I mean, <laughs> that would have been awesome. I don't know what the exact numbers were, but and we probably will never know. But I, I guess the point I wanted to make was this lady was from a losing clan. She became a refugee because her family obviously had enough money to do that. Because if they wouldn't have had money, they would have been right there suffering with everybody else. Right. But they weren't. So there was something either politically, uh, fiscally that 
allowed them to leave. Do you know who, uh, and I might, I might butcher this lady's name, and I'm trying to remember, but I believe her name is Ayan Hersi Ali. I have never heard of her. Okay, if you haven't heard of her, if you want to see a Somali lady that is amazing, and, that, and that, see, and that's where I'm going with this. You, 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 we, we want to paint this picture like Mogadishu, Somalia is terrible, and all Somalis are bad. Now, I will tell you this. Most of the other African countries look down at Somalis too because they they have been some pretty bad players, you know, throughout history. This lady uh, has written several books, and I just heard an, an interview with her. She was on a, a Megan Kelly's podcast, and I don't even know how I came up on that, but it was kind of funny because Megan Kelly, who used to be on Fox and went to NBC, right. and then that ended badly. And she's probably not my favorite lady to listen to, but I saw this. She's got this Somali lady on her podcast. I want to listen to this. And let me tell you what, this lady is, she's unbelievable. So if you haven't, she's written several books. I don't remember all the names of them. One is called Infidel. Um, she was actually, as a young child, um, oh, her uh, private parts were chopped off there because that's part of their their Muslim. Uh, I don't know. Sharia that's law, what they right? like. Yeah, what they like to do. And this lady, I mean, it's just I'd really like to meet this gal. You know, that other gal probably don't care if we ever cross paths with her. She she doesn't like me, and I'd probably return the favor there as well. <laughs> but I guess that's the point. You know, you go to these places, and you got to try to find the good in whatever you do, and you just look at what American law enforcement's going through right now too. And here, and here's their problem. Who does law enforcement have to deal with every day? They deal with bad people every day. The good people are the people that might come up and buy them lunch or buy them a cup of coffee or say, thanks for your service or whatever, but they're not, they're not getting to interact with the, the best people. And I would say the same is true for the military. You go out and you do all this stuff and you see all this heinous heinous things going on and you sometimes lose touch with reality that there's some really good people no matter where you go i mean if in your downtown chicago and people are getting killed left and right i mean there's more people dying in chicago than in afghanistan and guess what there's really good people in chicago and i know a bunch of them in chicago the cops there are just stellar cats and they deal with that crap every day so you know i don't know i guess i kind of went off the off the reservation there a little bit, but I think okay. part of it is we just need to start talking to other people, listening, and maybe maybe a better way to say that is maybe we ought to listen a little bit. Hey, I'm different than you because I live out in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, and we raise chickens for eggs, and we walk through the woods and hunt deer and turkeys, and we shoot guns, and we believe in God and read our Bible, and we do things like that, and if our neighbors need help, you know what we do? We go help them. And when I go to help my neighbors, I don't go, hey, are you Republican or Democrat? Right. Nobody asked that. I mean, that's just stupid. And now, you know, and even so if a guy's got a, a Biden sign in their front yard, which they're pretty hard to find around where I live, but <laughs> if they did, does that mean that we're not going to be nice to that person? Right. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. You know, and I, I've got a, a very good friend of mine up in the D.C. area. And it always blows my mind that that he is on the left 
because of his background. He's a hunter. He's a shooter. He's a former Green Beret. He's Jewish. I mean, there's all these things that I think, well, that dude's got to be just like me. And guess what? He's not. He's got different views than I do. And I love talking to him because we can have a great conversation. But in order to do that, you got to half the time you got to be listening. And uh, I don't know. I think that's the part. I don't know how we're going to get that that point across to people. You know, and I, I, I have a friend uh, that I've interviewed on the show. He actually, during um, the uh, Dallas ambush that killed five officers, he was the negotiator for the SWAT team. Um, same as you said, shooter, he's a man of action, all these kind of things, but he's uh, very liberal. And, and when he talks about it, he's very liberal in, in his talks and his thoughts. And uh, it's interesting to hear, though, because you see this dichotomy with him that he, he has this job and he does this thing, but he has these other ideas. And it's, it's really cool to kind of see him come together, um, especially working with, you know, a majority, like you said, of conservative people and things to see how he gets his ideas across. If we could, though, I want to talk about Mogadishu just for a little bit. Um, we have gone into it. We had Brad Thomas on the show, um, and he yeah. was an, yeah he was an actual ranger on the ground at the time. But you were with Delta, um, and I want to start this out by saying that I I think one of the funniest quotes I've ever heard in my life is you talking to a class at West Point, and you had said you were in fifth group. Uh, you had run missions, but you'd never really stormed the castle like uh, with Mogadishu. And you said on the first mission that you went out, you couldn't have driven a stick pin up my ass with a sledgehammer that night. And every, <laughs> everybody laughed and you said, I'm, I'm being completely serious. When you come out on your first mission, real mission, you're going to have feelings that you've never had before. And you're going to have to confront some things head on. Can you speak a little bit about that and what you were feeling, what you were thinking that night? Because like you said, you'd already been a special forces soldier and stuff, but this was completely different. Yeah. And I, and I think you got to be a realist. So if you're not scared, this is my opinion. This is not something that I read in a book or that I was taught in special forces training. But if, if you're not scared, you're an idiot. I mean, really you're an idiot. Now that I'm, I'm not saying that, you should be terrified. Being terrified is something different, but being scared and respecting the enemy and what they can do to you is, I think that's, to me, that's kind of like common sense. Because if, if you're playing any of these sports where nobody dies, well, if you, if you don't pay attention to what's going on, somebody's going to run by you or they're going to hit a baseball past you or they're going to, you know, make a slap shot that you could have stopped by putting your stick in their face or whatever in the military. We don't, you know, we're playing for keeps here. So I think that being very aware of what's going on. And I would say this, the biggest reason for that statement was I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what I just didn't, I just didn't know. Um, everything kind of went as planned that, that first mission um, I was pretty amped up. They had me breach a door with a shotgun. I shotgunned it and I kicked the door and I kicked the door so hard that I went all the way up to my crotch through the door. And then they were like, get out of the way, lamb, you know, and they went in there, and did their thing. Um, 
and I don't want to make it sound like I'm a bumbling idiot either, but these little things, everybody does little things like that. Now, I would say this, after Mogadishu, what was on my mind was what happens the next time. So we do a mission, I'm a little amped up, and then we do more missions and you get a little bit more relaxed. And then all of a sudden the 3rd of October happens and we're in a big shootout. And I wasn't really, it wasn't the same that day. Everything was going our way and it didn't really sink into me until we'd had a ranger shot. We drug him out of the street. We were, we're working on him. I'm like, man, this is it. This is, this is, this is it. I thought we we're going to get overrun, you know? Um, and then later on going to, uh, Iraq, I did five tours to Iraq for the current, uh, global war on terror. And what, what I think was even worse than that first mission was being worried about your men on the battlefield. Because when I went on the battlefield, then I was only worried about myself. Cause I was just, I was the, <laughs> I, I wasn't a ranking individual at the time. I was pretty, uh, well, you're what, low on the staff sergeant promotable, right? Yeah, I was staff sergeant at the time. Yeah. So get over to uh, Iraq and I'm a SAR major and I've got a troop of fire breathing dudes that are going out and getting busy with it. And man, that was way, way more nerve wracking because I was, I was, I was worried about those guys. Cause every day you go out, you could hit an ID. You could, somebody could take a pot shot at you. I mean, once we get on the objective, then, you know, things would usually go our way, but there's just a lot of dirt bags hanging around to, to try to make your life miserable there. You know, and then the other thing is if, if uh, guys get shot or even worse, if guys get killed, you know, that's, I don't know, that's, uh, that's hard to deal with. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's, I don't know. I don't know the right word for it. I just, I know that it's sometimes, even today, I wonder why, you know, Mike McDonalty, Bob Horrigan, my soldiers, why they didn't get to come back. And I did because it was just a, you know what I mean? I wasn't on that objective when they got killed. I was, I was uh, displaced from them, but still you, you always wonder like, man, you know, I guess when your number's up, your number's up. And that's, you know, some people, don't believe in that. But I, I got to tell you, when I hear some of the comments that were made before that mission, I would say that maybe, maybe that is true, you know? So I don't know. It's, uh, it's, I think I've seen, I've seen some law enforcement guys that, that use some techniques and I've seen military do this too, but I'm going to pick on law enforcement okay. in law enforcement there's a technique that's used for active shooter. That's called the, the diamond formation inside of buildings. And the plan is you're going to stay in this diamond formation. You're going to move down these hallways and the hallway is a danger area. It's, it is the most dangerous area in a building, usually because the bad guy can shoot at you from any room into that hallway. So it's a, it's a really bad danger area. So we try to stay out of the hallways. So we use a technique, where we split the hallway and you stay close to the walls, um, regardless of what people call rabbit rounds that'll run the walls. We're staying there because if you have a threat to your front, the guys on the right and the left can engage. And the guy that's behind you, if you're on a knee, the guy behind you can engage 
over your shoulder as well. Whereas if in you're, in, you're in a diamond position, you don't know which way that number one guy is going to go. And I've heard, I've heard some folks that were pretty smart tell me that, well, the number one guy is going to stay right there in the middle of the hallway. And I'm like, man, you guys got way bigger balls than me because when the shooting starts, I'm going to go for cover. And I think that's what's, to me, you got to be honest in these techniques and tactics that you're using as well. You can't say that. You can't stay, say that you're going to just stand there while bullets are snapping around your head and you're not going to do anything because if you're smart, you're, you're going to try to take cover. You're not just going to stand in the middle of that in the middle of that hallway. So I try to, you know, when I teach guys shooting and tactics, I try to try to get inside their psyche. Like, okay, what would you do if somebody was going to punch you in the face? Would you just stand there and take it? No, you would get into a, a posture that would allow you to either block that or duck it, or I guess, enjoy the ride. Maybe, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I see I that. I see that like a lot. That stuff. So yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not in. I mean, maybe that's part of it. I've been punched in the face enough to know that it's not cool. So maybe I'm already trained up there, and they just need to be beat beat about the head and shoulders a little bit. But uh, it's important when you're developing techniques and tactics, and any anything that you're doing. You know, how does it work with with your normal actions? when you're in a fight and that's what i try to i try to apply probably the only thing that i do that's not normal is i try to weight the balls of my feet a little bit more than normal because i don't want to be flat-footed and then when i get ready to move i lift up my front foot which is kind of different than how most people start to walk so when you watch people walk that's one thing i've got i have to get inside people's brains and say okay Put your weight there so when it's time to move, just lift that foot. You'll move faster, keeping up with your stack or to, you know, to move into a point of domination or, or whatever. But anyway. So let's talk about that, though, the the leadership and, and getting into people's psyches and, and talking about that. Uh, a lot of what people say about leadership is what I've seen in, in my career and in the military and things like that is, you have a lot of people that are in leadership positions that have never either done the job or two, uh, don't know how to do the job. So, and, and what I mean by that, they sound like the same thing, but they're not. What I mean is they're not in the second part of that is they're not willing to learn how to do the job. Uh, they just want to kind of in, you know, put their forms into it when it doesn't work. Right. You've written books about leadership. So can we talk about that a little bit about what you think about leadership styles and, and where we've kind of gone wrong in leadership today? Man, that's a huge, <laughs> that's a huge uh, wide net you've cast there. So let me start with this. What's better than experience? Do you, do you know of anything that's better than experience? No. I've heard people say, you know, well, are leaders made or are they born? That's a stupid, that's just a stupid question to me. Now, can you be born with, with some of those attributes that if, if you're raised correctly, will someday work? Then that's, yeah, probably true. But I'm telling you, Patton didn't come out of the womb, you know, with his pearl-handled pistols. I mean, it took him a lot of years to become up, you know, to get where he was at. And I'm not, I'm probably not a huge fan of Patton, but 
I kind of like I kind of like his style. Um, Got a little swagger to him. Yeah, he had a he had a lot of swagger, and I think as a leader, there's a lot of things that you we we would like you to have, but they're not absolutely needed. But one thing that you know, for example, being aggressive. Do you have to be aggressive to be a leader? Probably not. Do you have to be extremely smart to be a leader? No. Do you have to be extremely dumb to be a leader? No. I mean, there's so many you can, there, it, it, we're in America, thank goodness. So it's not how much money you got in your bank account to be a leader in the military. It's not uh, who your mom and dad were. Uh, we're not aristocrats. Um, we in the United States military have a meritocracy. And who is the most famous dude that started that with his military? Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, now he got his job because his dad had been a Khan, but he fought for it and he proved himself and he made all of his generals prove themselves before they became, became generals. They had to be in combat. They had to perform. They had to fight. They had to make good decisions on the battlefield. So, and he, and he's, he ruled more or, or conquered more of the world than the Romans ever did. Uh, more of the world than than Alexander the Great ever did, so meritocracy can actually work, you know, because you're putting the right guys and gals in the in those positions there in the military. Um, I will I I can report that most of the time people have experience before they get in the positions of increased responsibility. The the military doesn't do a bad. I don't think they do a bad job of that. I will say that sometimes in law enforcement, we may not do the greatest job. And I will say that a lot of times on the civilian side, we, we do a, a pathetic job of that. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that you are, you're going to sign up to be a uh, work for the DEA, FBI, any of these organizations, who's going to get, who's going to start at a higher pay grade? the individual that has a master's degree or the individual that has experience. Oh, the master's degree by a long shot. Yeah. And that's absolutely asinine. It's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. So we're going to take somebody and I'm not saying getting a master's degree or having a degree is bad. That, that is not bad at all. But when we're picking somebody for the job, I believe experience is key. Um, and I will, I'm going to, I'm going to actually double down on something here. Tenure. That's what teachers have. They have tenure. So we're going to promote because of tenure or they're going to get special treatment because of tenure. And that means that you've been there the longest. So just because you've been there the longest doesn't mean that you're the, you're the best teacher. So once again, if we have a, have somebody that served in that position longer than anybody else, that doesn't mean that they're the number one pick. But if we have somebody that's never served in that position, then they're definitely not going to be my number one pick because I want to have somebody that has experience before they get in that position. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm never going to promote from within because I'm going to take an individual. I'm going to bring them up to snuff uh, by giving them extra responsibility. I'm going to delegate authority but I'm going to maintain overall responsibility as a leader. And that's another thing that we're not doing in America right now. And maybe around the world, we have people that screw up and it's all on them. We never punish their leaders. 
And I will tell you this, it's always leadership. If you pick the wrong person for the job and they fail, you're the one that picked the wrong person for the job. So you are the leader. You are the failure. And a lot of times we don't want to hurt people's feelings. So we say, oh, well, well, we really can't say that. What do you mean we can't say that? This guy sucks. There you go. I've said it. He sucks. I, I He's just gonna get heard people that killed. exact statement today where they said, you have to placate people. You can't just tell them how it is anymore. And I said, you can't or you won't. There's a huge difference. Yeah. Now, I, don't, I think you can be positive about it. You can say, hey, you know, I saw what you were doing today, and that was not awesome. <laughs> See how positive that sounds? <laughs> um, I, had a, I had another question that came up today. I had a guy that, that emailed me. We get a lot of, of questions on our website, you know, a lot of product questions and this and that. And believe it or not, we answer all of those. My wife who is the CEO answers most of those. She answers 200 to 300 emails a day. Wow. She sends, she sends me the emails. Now those are not all questions, but you know, she's, she does a lot of emails a day. I normally get five to 10 emails a day that are product questions or other questions like, Hey, I got this podcast. Can you come on this podcast? I did that. And yeah, yeah. And that's cool because we get a lot of those and some of them were like, yeah, we want to do it. I mean, this podcast is awesome. So I want, yeah, I want to be on this podcast. There's other podcasts where like, yeah, man, sorry, but I, I'm, I mean, I am busy. So we have to rack and stack what we're going to do. Um, but this question came in today and this guy said, how do we, how do we get our people to be accountable? How do we make those that work for us be accountable? So I did a little research on this cat. I found out who he was. I already had his name. I had his email address so I could figure out where he worked pretty quickly. And they run like a demo company out of, I believe, out of Texas. Man, I started looking at the pictures of the people from their company. And I started looking at group photos. And I started looking at what their mission is. And I'm like, man, I want to I work for this company. It's just awesome. You got a bunch of, I mean... Every picture, the people look motivated and happy and physically fit. And I mean, there's just a lot of things you can quickly pick up from this. So I told him, I said, well, I, you know, he's like, oh, this is the hardest question ever. And I can't figure it out. Uh, you know, what do you think? You know, is there a way that you could take the time to somehow figure this out? And I'm like, how do you teach people to be accountable? It's super easy. First of all, you're always there with them. And how do people become accountable? It's because you're there. And you evaluate every single thing that you do. And we call that a hot wash. You can call it an after action review. That's what they call it, the military. Or in law enforcement, you might call it uh, a, a debrief. So how hard is that? You take your people, you're there with them, you work with them, and then you debrief everything you did. And anything that's wrong, we call it out right in there, right then and there, and we make those people accountable for their actions. And then pretty soon, they're going to realize that they're accountable for their actions all the time. So to me, it's, it's yeah, it takes some training because it's pretty hard when you take a bunch of military, excuse me, military dudes, you run them into a room and they look like a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off and you bring them out. They've been in that room for like 10 seconds 
and you bring them out and it takes 30 minutes to debrief all the stuff they did wrong. And one of the things th those chickens like to say is, no, I didn't do that. Well, no, 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 that's not what I did. And then we go, oh, here's the videotape right here, dude. That's you. You're the one with the blood spraying everywhere. You're the, the, the lead chicken with your head cut off and you don't know what the heck you're doing. Do you understand now? And then they still want to argue with you. And then you're like, okay, you can either understand and we'll do this again, or you can not understand and you can go back to the regular army. They understand pretty quickly what that, that this is serious business. And then it becomes where you go into that room and you clear that room and you come out and there's like two things you have to worry about. Everything else was done perfectly. One of the things that army does is sustain and improves. And to me, you waste all your breath with sustain. Who cares? You did it right. We don't need to even talk about that. What are the improves? Always focused, always focus on where you can improve. Um, I know you've listened to some of the stuff we've done in the past. And one of the things I, I was reading a book by Admiral Stockdale, and he said, the military trains for failure. And I'm like, well, maybe he trained for failure, but we didn't train for failure. And then I started analyzing what we did. Guess what? We did. Doggone, doggone right. You better be training for failure because if you don't train for failure, you're done. Every contingency is a failure. And if you don't plan for those contingencies and one of them happens, a guy gets shot, that's a contingency. Bird goes down, that's a contingency. Uh, the, the list goes on. And you've got to train for those contingencies to be successful. So once again, being accountable, I think this guy that sent me this email, it was awesome. I, I Actually, I just answered it before we got on this podcast. And, it, you know, it's... It's a great question. And these, these people are out there. They've got a great company and they just want to do better and better and better. Man, you know, I'm not saying that my leadership book is a be all end all, but my leadership book isn't how you claw your way through middle management and step on people's necks to get into a leadership position. That's not it. My book is about truly leading people. And if you can lead people in combat, you can definitely lead them in business. Because in business, if you fail, guess what? You, your, your paycheck's a little light. In the business that, that I've been in, if you fail, things can, can be uh, pretty bad. So a, a two-part to that to kind of tack on to it. First off, do you think that accountability starts at the top? Yes. Because I don't see that a lot anymore where people actually at the top take accountability for what they do. I see it kind of trickle down well this person didn't do what i said here and and then they say this person didn't do it here and then it, it just goes down until it gets to the lowest common denominator someone who can't i don't want to say can't defend themselves but has no leg to really stand on yeah and, and number two of that how you said that you don't want to train for sustained you want to train for the improvements do you find any problems with doing that because i don't think that a lot of people are built for just hearing improvements. I think that's a lot of what we have problems with today is people don't want to hear what they need to improve. They want to hear what they did right. They want that instant credibility. So part one is how do we fix that at the leadership level where leadership takes responsibility? And number two, how do we, how do we ingrain that and get into the psyche of improvements, not just sustainment? I was a little bummed tonight because my 
fountain pen quit working and I become like the fountain pen dude. And now I'm writing with a pencil. <laughs> okay. So, so how do we fix the leaders? Um, man, that's a hard one, but there's enough, there's enough of us out there that we can keep beating that drum. And here's the thing. Are we going to fix everybody? No. And really you, you need to fix, you need to fix what you can fix. And how many people should you be leading? You should be leading four people, right? And I know that's going to, that's going to really, people are going to be like, wow, that's wrong. I lead a hundred. If you're leading a hundred people, guess what? You are combat ineffective because you can't do it. You can't lead a hundred people. Why do you think the military, everything is in fours and fives? It's because that's, that's a what manageable they've, level. they've proven. Yeah. They've proven that's, that's what you can lead. So I would say, try to fix what you can. There's, I don't know if I knew how to fix all the leaders out there, I'd be a, I don't know. I'd be a gazillionaire, I guess. I, I guess my um, question to it is, is when you can't fix that, and, and here's what I see. When you can't fix that leadership style or you can't make them responsible for what they did, what you start to see is low morale. Then you start to see uh, unproductiveness and you see all those things. There's no way to turn those people. It's, it's very hard to turn those people around. Yeah. Once they're set in that way of, well, they're not taking responsibility at the top and I'm damn sure not going to take it down here. You know, we, we get into almost a kind of a chicken and egg scenario. Yeah, and what we need to say is, if we're down here, we need to be, we need to, we need to be responsible and accountable. And if they're not, if you can't fix it, you can't fix it. There's some things we just, we just can't fix. Um, focus on what you can fix, what you can influence at your level, and eventually, God willing that the right person will move into that position. Right. Now in the military, it's a two year gig. So leaders take a position for two years, man. That's another thing that is amazing. And I hear people, Oh, two years isn't a long enough time. Yeah, it is. If that dude sucks, <laughs> two years is the perfect amount of time. If they're amazing, guess what? In two years, they've mentored as much as they can. And it's time for them to move on and do other great things and help other people to become great. But if they're bad, man, pack up and move on out, and we will never, ever mention your name again. Uh, let me answer that second part of your okay. question. So, how do we get how do we get people to start to to not have to have sustains and be okay with hearing improves? The way we do that is every single time we do something, we start with you're the leader, and you have to start with what you did wrong. Tell people what you did wrong. It's going to be difficult the first couple of times you do it. I do it now and I don't even think about it because it's it's just the natural way to do it. And every time you do something, I guarantee that I can find something that you did wrong. So if I can find it, I know that you as an individual, if you have if if you're honest, you can find something that you did incorrectly and you can lead off with that. And then as we go down that chain of command, everybody's kind of got to, to get into that. And the other way that you can do it is you don't attack people. We, we're not here to attack. We're here to make everybody better as a team, right? That should be your goal. Because if this is all about individuals, then I'm not your guy. Because I, I, I don't work as an individual. I work better in a team environment. Um, 
everybody's an individual. I get that. But that once again, that's what's wrong with America right now. Everybody wants to be an, indi in an individual, but nobody wants to work as part of a team. If everybody would just say, let me focus on helping the man or the woman on my left and my right today and not worry about myself, boy, that'd be a, that'd be a strange way to, to deal in public, wouldn't it? You know, Absolutely. what can I do for you? Hey, how can I help you? Hey, what can I do here? Oh, let me get that for you. Not, hey, you better do this. You better do that. You better give me that. You better do this. That just drives me, drives me insane. Teach those people what it's like to go through that mission. What's the first part of a mission? Pre-deployment, deployment. Then we do our planning. Then we then once we've had our planning take place, then we got infill. We got actions on the objective, or maybe it's infill, breach, actions on the objective, uh, movement to our exfill, HLZ, and then exfill. Every one of those we got to go through and we got to figure out what we did wrong. That way, the next time that we go out the door, we can remedy that situation. And I think part of that might, part of the problem might be that a lot of this is getting written down and writing it down doesn't do anything. You, you need to take notes. I get that. But a lot of times in the military, there's a document that's produced. And at the end of the day, that document's produced and guess where it goes? It goes in the file cabinet. And it's never looked at again. What needs to happen is the sergeant major or, you know, if you're a cop, the sergeant, to me, that's where the buck stops with law enforcement is, is at the sergeant level. And in the military, it's the NCOs. And they need to bring that book with them and say, I'm doing hip pocket training today. What did we screw up the last time we did this? What can we influence? Like I said, you can only influence as far as you can reach. So let's influence those four people that I'm leading. If I'm a platoon sergeant, I influence my squad leaders and I tell them, here's what we're going to work on you four dudes. You got it? Roger that. And they go out and they influence their guys. So we got fire team leaders. They can influence those dudes and, and, and all those cats in their squad. And next thing you know, that's that trickle down. And eventually, um, what I have seen is you're going to see jealous people that are like, man, how are those guys so squared away? Why are they like that? I'm looking at this, this group of law enforcement officers over here. Man, their sergeant delegates authority, but not responsibility. How does that work? He delegates authority to people that he knows can accomplish the mission because they've worked together, they've trained together, they've bled together. So that man or woman that's a sergeant takes those patrolmen and puts them in the right positions and he says, when you arrive on target, on objective, on the, the patrolman shows up, it ain't the SWAT team that shows up first. It's the patrolman in the street that shows up first. Guess what? They got to be able to handle that problem. And if they have a good sergeant above them, they get in there and they do it. And then you got the lieutenant. What do they do? Beans and bullets. I mean, they're making sure that that sergeant uh, has everything that they need and that whatever it is, they get it for them, you know? And, and I don't know, I've never been a cop. But I've trained with a bunch of them, and I've seen, I've seen the really good, and I've seen the really bad. And uh, there's a lot of really good cops out there. So, you know, don't if you're a cop, don't lose hope that there's nothing you can do. It eventually it will get better because eventually, if you hang in there, you should get promoted. And that's one other thing too. Let me just get up on my peach crate for one more second here. If you're a cop and you're not trying to get promoted, shame on you. If you want to make changes, you got to get promoted. And I'm not saying that you should 
cheat or just be the guy that has no experience and just gets promoted up to lieutenant and then all of a sudden you really suck and people can see that you suck. No, get the experience that you need and then test to be a sergeant if that's how they do it. Then once you've got that experience, then test to be a lieutenant. Eventually, we'll get the right guys in those positions and, and then things will be good. And then you'll be there for a few years and then you'll leave and then a crappy guy is going to get in that position. And then it's the whole self-licking ice cream cone starts again. So let's talk about another problem in leadership, micromanagement. There's a lot of micromanagement that goes on these days. We, uh, well, I shouldn't say we, leaders today worry about things that don't need to be worried about and overlook the things that do. Um, First, what's your thoughts on micromanagement? Man, I love it. I think everybody should micromanage. <laughs> really? I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, so that's I, not I what wanna... I've heard. No, absolutely not. So if you're going to be successful, you've got to empower people. You can't micromanage if you empower. But what's your job as a leader? Supervision, right? So right. If, you, if you have a mission, you accept a mission, you plan a mission, part of that is supervise. Figure out what supervise means and make sure that supervising and micromanagement don't mean the same thing in your brain. And if you can't figure it out, open up the dictionary and start reading or read a, you know, read my leadership book. Maybe you can, maybe you'll figure something out there. I don't know. By the Um, way, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. (laughs) I've had some people say that, well, I read this leadership book by Kyle Lamb and it's just it's so simple. It's not, it's not uh, academic enough. Thank the good Lord that I'm not an academic because Lord save us from academics because that's the person that's going to say that they're so much smarter than everybody else that they're going to micromanage everything that's going on because the only person in this room that's smart enough to handle this is me. And that's where that comes from. At least that's what I believe. So if you're a micromanager, man, there's another thing. Um, sorry, I'm all over the map here. No. You, you don't even want you don't even want to know what's going on inside of my brain. No, no, no. I mean, let's, it's like, let's take it's a trip in the there. No, no, no. We're good. Let's go. So if it, checklist, some people like checklists and some people don't like checklists. I believe that checklists will keep you from failing in times of stress and times of being tired, hungry, wet, miserable, scared, whatever. We, I believe we should have checklists for that purpose. I also believe that there are certain things that we should put on our checklist that we are not to do. So we have our to-do list or a checklist or a punch list or whatever you want to call it. And then nobody carries a list of what they want to stop doing. Why do we not carry that list? Why wouldn't you want to stop micromanaging, stop talking down to my people, stop berating people for no apparent reason, um, stop uh, making fat jokes about the fat guy, stop making skinny jokes about the skinny guy? I mean, seriously, as a leader, that, that's unprofessional. So all of that's unprofessional. Micromanagement's unprofessional. Berating your people is unprofessional. And, and, and when I say berating, that's not, uh, I, don't know how, I don't know how to put it. Berating is chewing somebody out for basically no apparent reason. 
tell them what they did wrong. If they don't get it, then tell them again. But if they get it, you don't need to berate them. Just say, hey, dude, you screwed this up. Do you understand? Roger that. That's all I need. If they say Roger that, pretty soon you're going to have people that when they say Roger that, you know what that means? It means exactly that. I got it, boss, and I'm out of here, and I'm going to correct that situation. So I believe that having a list of things that you want to stop doing is, is equally as important to things that you want to do. Um, it, it could be simple, something as simple as, you know, maybe you want to stop cussing at these folks because once you start cussing, they just shut down. I mean, whatever it is, you got to treat everybody different. In my book, did you read the chapter on the one word? So what's your one word, your one leadership word that's the most important leadership trait to you? So that's one of the chapters in my book. When you read that, a lot of folks will be like, oh yeah, accountability. Oh yeah, credibility. Oh yeah, uh, be buoyant. I had a guy tell me, and there's a story in that book about a guy that was a cop that he said, you should be buoyant. And I'm like, well, that's a stupid word, but all right, that's your word. And then when he explained it, I'm like, that's an amazing word. Buoyant, you wanna stay on top of the waves, no matter if they're up or down, you as the leader are always at the top. So when things are bad, that's more important for you to be a leader than when things are good. Right. So this guy was saying buoyant. But the, but the moral of that chapter isn't so much for you as it is for the people that you lead. So if, if I'm the leader, it's my responsibility to figure out what's important to you. And then you know what I have to do? I have to lead you. And then I have to lead this guy over here. And I got to lead that gal over there. And guess what? Everybody requires a different leadership style. So you as a leader, if you think, well, no, that's on them. No, it's not on them. It's on you. You're the leader. You have got to make sure that you're leading people the way that they need to be led. And maybe you've got to try 10 different ways of leading that individual. How about putting them in charge? You know, maybe if you do that, maybe all of a sudden they'll step up to the, the plate and they'll start performing at a higher level. Oh, wait a minute. Everybody does that. Every single person I've ever worked with, if you put them in charge of something, what do they do? They try to perform better than they would if they're a follower. And then when th once they've done that, you can say, hey, man, I saw how you performed as a, as a leader. How about performing like that when you're a follower? And then boom, some of them, the, the, the headlamp goes on there and the light bulb flashes. And next thing you know, they, they get it and they start improving. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to raise the people up that are going to take our job eventually. If you're just leading people because you're leading people, then that I, I disagree with that. I think you should lead to mentor those that will eventually take your position. And in the military, that could happen tomorrow because I could get killed on the objective. It could happen because I break my leg or get hit by a car. It could happen because I retire. But no matter what happens in two years, I'm gone. So in two years, there's got to be somebody to step in and replace me. Let's talk about your book for a minute. You just brought that up. I think an important chapter in, in it and one that a lot of people don't talk about, especially military people, police officers, things like that, is leading your family. Uh, you see record number of divorces in the military, record number of divorces with police officers. Um, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different reasons that go into that. We haven't found really that stride yet. Now, you have been married for quite a while. 
And I've heard you mention in other interviews that uh, it was your wife that told you that you could make it in special forces and Delta because you were a little unsure about it. And, and to me and all the stuff that I've seen you talk about her, she's kind of been your rock behind you. Um, I've been married for almost 24 years now, but you don't see it a lot anymore. Can we talk about leadership in the family and what the responsibilities are for the members of the family, for the leaders of the family? And, and how do we know that we're doing a good job as being a leader of the family? Well, I've been married for 33 years, I think. <laughs> it's a long, it's been a long time. Oh, by the way, to the same woman. So right, I have right. to say that because in the military, sometimes there's a lot of dudes, but Barry had been married for 30 years, but it's like three or four chicks that <laughs> they've been married to. Um, so one thing that you hear a lot is how do you, how do you improve? You improve by failing, right? Right. At least that's how I have improved. And I will tell you that as a father, as a husband, I've been a failure. And I think that's what has facilitated um, where I am right now because I wasn't the greatest dad. I haven't been the greatest husband, but luckily I have a wife that is squared away and she is standing right beside me all the time. And, and some people get offended by that. And I'm, and what I mean is like, there's some dudes that they want their wife to just be there and be seen and not heard from. I don't want that. I want to be, see my wife. I want to hear what she's got to say. I want to be evenly yoked with her because we're leading this family together. And quite honestly, our careers, she got me through what I went through in the military. She buried the, the mates of mine that were killed. I never buried any of them. And that's, I don't take that lightly. We were still deployed. So these, these, uh, these wives were grieving and my wife had to be there with them. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a coward, but I don't want anything to do with that. That's, I mean, can I do it? Yeah. If I have to do it, I can do it. But that's, that's a big, big rock that I put in my wife's rucksack and said, Hey honey, peace out. I'm deploying handle everything that has to do with feeding the kids, clothing the kids, getting the kids to school making sure the checkbook is balanced. Oh, wait, now it's time to feed the kids, clothe the kids. I mean, right. oh, and by the way, we're going to have guys that are going to get jacked up and they're going to come home and we're gonna, there's going to be guys that are maimed or missing limbs or dead. And yeah, you're going to deal with all that. And I'm just going to go down range and do what I do. I'm telling you, man, you, you've got to give credit to your wife or your husband. They, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And, and I'm not trying to make light of this. I mean, I'm absolutely serious. I honestly would not be where I am today. If it weren't for my wife, I'd probably be in South Dakota, sitting on a bar stool somewhere miserable that I had to, to keep farming. Cause I sucked at farming. You know what I'm saying? Um, the, the other thing that I want to bring up is, is about our kids. Okay. I have, I've got two kids. I've got a daughter who's works for a government agency as an Intel analyst. And then I have a son who actually runs the VTAC warehouse and they're both awesome kids. And I will say this, they're awesome because of my wife, because I was gone a lot. Um, now that I've hit kind of this stage in my life, 
I've tried to do better. And one of the things that that really drove it home for me, and I think this is, no, I don't think, I know, I know why it was driven home. Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine, Bob, in, uh, he's a cop in Indiana, and he said, hey, man, I've got my buddy. He's a preacher, and he'd like you to come speak at his church. And I said, I'll do it. And he's like, oh, what? what? You'll do it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And my heart was racing like the first mission in Somalia. I was like, <laughs> I was more scared that I had said that than I've ever been in combat. And I'm thinking, well, definitely don't tell him about the stick pin when you get to that church. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, I probably have told him that. So now I've got to figure out what I'm going to. So he thought I was kidding, and he was actually kidding. He didn't want me to speak at this church, and then he found out I would do it, and then this preacher was like, well, that'd be awesome. So I'm trying to put together my message. Well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not. And that's not why I'm going to that church. And my wife sat me down and she goes, what are you doing? And I go, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to talk to these guys about. And she goes, you're not a preacher. You're going there to talk about what it's like to be Kyle Lamb in your life as a Christian. Well, the clue bird flew over and took a dump on my head. So I walked into this church and the first time I went in there, I, I, I was pretty nervous and I had a list of notes and I never use notes because I, I just don't use notes. I, I, I try to know my, uh, my material well enough. I might have a little reference, you know, something that'll let me talk for a half an hour or whatever, but I don't use notes, man. I had notes for that thing. I was a nervous wreck. And then about 20 minutes into it, I put my notes down and I was good to go. The second time I did it, I walked in and I said, I'm here to talk about the pussification of the American male. And the crowd was like, my buddy that was a preacher, he's like, oh my goodness. And everybody laughed and I had their attention. And that's, that's why I did that was to get their attention. But anyway, so the, the, uh, the first time I did it, I was, I was trying to get my message ready. And I, I started thinking, okay, what? Oh, and I, by the way, I told them that I would only talk to the men. And they're like, only the men. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I should talk to the ladies. I think I would be better if I just talked to the dudes the first time out of the gate. And, and I've kind of stuck with that. And I have no, and I told the guys this, I have nothing against women. Actually, I hold women on a much higher pedestal than men, as they should be. That's, that's the way it should be. As a, as a dude, you should hold women up high, you know? And some people would get offended by me saying that, but I'm being very, very respectful when I say that, that I, I, I mean nothing bad by saying that. And I said, you know, women got it figured out because women have a job as soon as the baby's born and it's called mom. And moms do a pretty doggone good job. It's the dads that tend to suck in America. And that's unfortunate. But when I started you know, thinking about this, I started thinking, well, how am I as a dad? Am I one of those guys that fits into that suck category? And after a lot of soul searching, I realized that, man, both my feet were planted firmly on the big button on the ground that said suck. And I wanted to suck less. So I just had to be honest with these guys. So this was as much for me as it was for them. And I'm a Christian. So I, I believe that 
You know, we are called to do things like this. And I believe that God puts things in your heart or on your head or in your life that, that if you listen, you, you could have a big impact in your life. So I started thinking about my son and I started thinking, if I met you on the, on the street and you were a cop or you're a military guy or you're just some dude on the street, I would be kind to you. I would be nice to you. I would smile at you. Or, you know, if I was meeting a cop or a military guy, I'd probably shake your hand and tell you thanks for your service. Yet, here's my son, and I'm going to be on my son like a hobo on a ham sandwich. And my son is an awesome dude. My son is an awesome man. My son is a hardworking guy. He's He's, he's fun. He's, he's all those things that you want your buddies to be, but he's my son. So I've got to have my thumb on him and I want him to do more and I want him to do this and this and this. And then I started thinking, why would I not treat my son better than an absolute stranger on the, on the, on the street? That's because I suck. So I got to unsuck myself there to, to do that. I love my son. I love my daughter too. I always treated my daughter a little bit better because she's my daughter. But I realize that I've, if if I'm going to be a good dad, I got to treat my son and elevate him as well. And the thing is, if if your son is not doing what you want them to do, that doesn't mean mean that we get to treat them badly. We are there as a mentor, as a leader for our family, and it's our responsibility to try to get our kids also to take it up a notch. No matter what they're doing, they can always do better. And and in doing that try to bring ourselves up a notch or two as well. So, man, I guess by, you know, practicing what I preach, man, it was, it was pretty emotional for me to kind of go through that because I'm like, man, I, you know, you, I'm a fake, you know, here I am. I'm this guy. They're calling me in. They want me to talk about being a Christian and being a leader and a mentor and all this stuff. And here I am. I'm, I'm, I suck. And <laughs> I'll tell you right now that I'm, I'm doing a lot better with that. So I think that, you know, that chapter was the last chapter in that book. And to me, it's the most important chapter because no matter what position you're in right now, I don't care what your, what your occupation is, military, law enforcement. We always say that, but there's a lot of people out there that are plumbers, that are doctors, that are welders that are teachers. And when all this is done, you finally are retired or on your next job like me. I mean, I retired from the military, but I'm going to work until the day I die. Um, your family's the only, that's the only people that are going to be there in the end. I mean, we got buddies and you say, yeah, man, bro, I'm in there, you know, whatever. Okay. Roger that. But the reality is it's going to be your wife and kids or your husband and your kids and grandkids and great grandkids and aunts and uncles. And those are the people that are going to be there. And uh, man, you've got, you can't overlook that. And I know that the military, it's, it's a fast paced deal in law enforcement. You know, you, you guys that are out there that are in law enforcement, when you come home, check it at the door, dude, your family loves you. Let me ask you something, Kyle. And, and and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I, I think it's kind of a good point. When you say that you sucked as a father, now I'm in a little different boat than you. I have three daughters. I have all daughters. So um, 
Now, I, I have to tell them every once in a while, you know, secretly that each one's my favorite and everything. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you think that you sucked at? If you had to break it down when you when you started thinking about it, what did you suck at being a father? You were obviously a provider. You showed them a good work ethic. You took care of your family. You loved your wife. You loved. What is it that you sucked at? Well, I think that um, work ethic and being a good provider don't make you a good father. Right. Because a lot of people that have millions and millions of dollars are crappy fathers. And they're providing, I mean, they're, they're providing everything and they're not providing the most important things. What does your wife need? Your wife needs you to be evenly yoked. So when you come home, guess what? If you're the, if you're the guy that's out there all day, I, I get that. You're tired, but guess what? You know, if, <laughs> what's harder, being a military dude or being a mom? Being a mom, Being dude, a mom. it would kill oh, me. Yeah. I couldn't do it. There's no way I could do it. Yeah. So when you come home, and I, I've been trying to do better and better at this because my wife runs Viking Tactics. She works harder than I have ever worked at a job. She is much more organized. She's a harder worker. And she not only does that, but she makes me breakfast every day. Not because I say, you got to make me breakfast. She loves to make me breakfast. And I am very happy that she makes me breakfast. When I'm home, she makes me breakfast. So I should return the favor. When I walk in that door, you've got to stop at that point and say, I've got to be there for my family. What does my family need from me? They don't need you to come home and start throwing stuff and being pissed off because the house is not cleaned up. Who cares if the house is messy? As long as your family is safe and sound and they've got chow, dude, the house can get cleaned up later. I mean, we, we lose our marbles over the stupidest stuff, sitting down and helping your kids with schoolwork. Man, I, I mean, that's something I should have done more of. I, you know, I helped a little bit, but I wasn't, I wasn't as big a help as I could be. I guess the bottom line is everybody needs something different. I would just like to interject about the homework with your kids. I don't know if you went through homeschooling during the quarantine. <laughs> I am an awful teacher. Yeah. I am I am the worst. Because you forget one just you know I look at like you said moms I look at teachers and moms the same way. They need you for everything. Everything. And and you yeah. overlook it when you're gone and you don't see it all the time, but when they you know my daughters would tell me during the homeschooling part they're back in school now but they would tell me uh how do I do this and I would say well you start to do this and they would go, well, what's the answer? And I'm like, well, I'm not giving you the answer. And they're like, well, then you're not helping. And, and you have to go <laughs> back in because they would say their teachers will walk us all the way through it when I'm not thinking, okay, I'll take you so far, but you got to finish it out. I, I completely agree with you that that's how it is all the time. You know, my, my wife works uh, full-time and she's a full-time mom. She, uh, it's crazy how much work is involved with just raising kids. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it's a little different for me with, with three daughters because I'm at a point now where I have a teenager, an almost teenager, and then a younger one. Boys are starting to sniff around the house. Uh, there, there's just a lot of things happening that, that I think I'm being punished for something I must have done in my earlier life. But 
Well, if you tase a couple of them boys, um, the rest will get the word pretty quickly that they shouldn't come <laughs> they, sniffing around they, uh, there. They'll, but they'll spread it out. So, you know, so I, I would, I would, I would say this: I'm an excellent instructor. Oh, but I suck at this homeschooling thing too. I've got two grandkids, and my grandson is doing the the homeschooling thing, the the, mm. the computer stuff. I can't even get the dude like through the screens to the right. I mean, I, it's, I'm like, sorry, bro. I don't know what to, I, I, I just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, let's talk to grandma. Cause guess what? She knows it all. And, and she'll, she's got it all wired tight. So I guess the, the moral of that whole story there is pay the respect to your family that they deserve and, and take a breath. I get it. I get it. You're tired. I get it. You've dealt with, a bunch of mopes all day. I get it. You've been, you've seen the worst of society. But guess what? When you walk into your house, it should be the best thing in your life. Your family, if your family's not the greatest thing in your life, then you might want to rethink your situation. But your children, your wife or your husband or whatever, um, man, that's the, it, that I'm telling you, and if you can make that, if you can, if you can do that, and here's the thing that's that's startling about that. A lot of people will say, man, I just can't do that. I'm not going to do that. That's not worth it. If you make a slight attempt, it's going to be amazing. And it's going to make your wife happier or your husband happier, your kids happier. It's just going to be better all around. You being a douchebag is not good for anybody. And, you know, and my wife is very forgiving of me. I come home from teaching a class and I'm kind of over it. When I've been on the road for, you know, two or three weeks and I come home, I, I, I just want to sit and stare at a rock. That's all I want to do. I don't want to talk to anybody. And guess what? Your wife's been waiting for two or three weeks for you to come home to talk to you. Be respectful. Talk to them. They... they they're doing things that are probably more important than what I'm doing anyway. And that's one of the things, the coronavirus, I get guys like, oh, this coronavirus, it's been, oh, this, this has been so terrible. And I'm like, man, the coronavirus is the best thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. I've spent more time with my wife in the last year than I've spent with her in the last 33 years. And it's been amazing. And I've got to hang out with my grandkids. I get to see my son more because he's in the warehouse every day working and I can be down there and chew the fat with him. We can go get lunch together. We can talk smack, whatever, whatever is required. And then I've been able to see my daughter when she, you know, comes here as well. So I don't know. It's been awesome. I I've kind of rechanged. I've kind of rethought my, my lot in life because of the uh, coronavirus. I've, I've actually decided to slow down on how many classes I'm teaching because of that, oh, because great. Man, it's it's awesome to be at home, and I realize that I don't know. I don't need to teach. I don't need to teach thirty five classes a year. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, that that's a lot of classes to teach. So let's get into Viking Tactics, President, Founder. Let's talk about your company because it's a pretty cool company. What gave you the idea? Right. What made you step away from being a military man with? I, I'm gonna have to guess no business experience. Because uh, you, most of your adult life had been spent in the military, to this company that is 
um, one of the coolest out there. Well, I, I don't have business experience, but I know how to sell stuff. How about okay. that? Okay. And I, and I say that because I guess I've kind of been a salesman my whole life because you got to convince your dad that this horse, you've got to have this new horse. This horse is going to, if I have this horse, this will be the last horse that, I mean, really that's kind of was my whole life. Like, no dad, I'm telling you this gun, if I get this Marlin Glenfield model 60 with the tubular magazine, semi-auto from the coast to coast in Clark, South Dakota. See, I rehearsed that I was ready. And eventually I got that gun as a Christmas present. And I, I killed a gazillion gophers with that thing and blackbirds and sparrows. And I shot a bunch of stuff. I probably shouldn't have shot too, but, um, so when I got out of the military, I, actually, I was still in the military, and I shot a lot of three-gun, and I did some shooting instruction while I was still in. On the weekends, I'd go to the range, and I would teach folks how to shoot. This idea for this VTAC sling, several of us were using kind of a version of that at work. We had, you know, different dudes had come up with different ideas, and we kept modifying different straps from our rucksacks and this and that to try to make something work better for a sling or to retain your your breaching shotgun or whatever it might be. And I made 10 of the original slings and gave them to the guys on my team. And I gave them to a couple of guys that were shooters that I shot three gun with. And uh, I started getting calls. Hey, I, I want one of those slings. And I'm like, man, I, those slings suck. I can't, I can't sell you one of those. I made those. I gave them away to these guys, man, people want slings. Are you kidding me? So then I started working with that current buckle that we use, that Waterbury buckle that originally was the, the rucksack quick adjust buckle that was on every Alice pack since I, I believe like 1970 something. So I went and had a hundred of those made by a buddy of mine that was one of the, the original guys at Paraclete. And I, I knew his brother, I'd served with his brother. And uh, this guy's name was Neil Ivory. And he made 200 of them. He said, well, I made 200. I was like, oh, crap. I told my wife 100. He goes, no, no, you only have to buy 100 of them. I'll keep the others here because you'll probably sell those first 100. And I'm thinking, I don't think I'll ever sell the first 100, let alone the second 100. So it took me about a year to sell the first 100. And that was while I was still in the military. And my wife and I were at night, we would put those in sandwich bags and we would put a header card that we made and we stapled it on there and doggone if people didn't start buying those things and we realized what what was wrong and improved on the sling and then the next year um i realized that if we didn't go to blackhawk they'd probably copy it so i went to blackhawk mike Knoll was a friend of mine and he said he would make them for us so we sold the next hundred pretty quickly and by the end of that year we'd sold a couple hundred more and Mike Knoll started making them for us at Blackhawk, and we ended up selling quite a few of those made in the USA uh, versions of that. And then we just kind of went from there, and now we we sell a whole lot more than a couple hundred of them in a year. And um, a friend of mine had taken me into his office at work, and he said, you're thinking about retiring? And I was like, oh, here we go. So he chewed me out up one side and down the other side. Then he slammed his office door. And I, I honestly thought we were going to fight. So I was kind of leaning into it. I thought, this is where we fight again, you know? This was another so, Sergeant Major, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he said, uh, he said, sit down. 
So I sit down on the couch in his office and he said, dude, I gave you the Sergeant Major talk and now I'm going to give you the friend talk. Dude, you need to get out of the army. You're, you're at a position now, you're never going to be an action guy anymore. You're at the, at the point where every position above this, yeah, it would be great. We'd love to have you, but dude, you could get out right now and you could be training folks and you're already selling equipment on the side. I mean, I don't know. You should, you should think about that. So I had a, a simple right in the rain notebook and I wrote reasons to stay reasons to go and, and things reasons to stay started going to the other side of that notebook. And I'm like, I'm going to get out of the military. So I got out with a little over 21 years in and my wife had started running VTAC a year prior to that. She was a school teacher. When our daughter graduated from high school, she started running VTAC full time. And that first year she didn't, she definitely didn't make as much as she made as a school teacher. She, I mean, yeah, she didn't make any money that first year. And then I got out. Because teachers, my my stepmom's a teacher. They don't make a lot of money, so. Well, yeah, but I mean, she made less money at VTAC. Right. Way less money at VTAC. So we were making nothing. And I got out and I had, um, I had, I don't know, it was, I had a lot of training, like 52 classes or something booked for that, that year. And. Or no, it was 45. It was 45 classes booked for that first year. So I knew that we were going to be fine for one year. So I got out, I started teaching classes, and now people are like, well, who is Kyle Lamb, and what's this Viking tactics, and what's this sling? And no, we got these three-point slings. They're awesome. And I'm like, okay, let's run a run an obstacle course with that sling. Let's treat somebody that's been injured. Oh, let's crawl over this wall. Oh, let's transition to our sidearm. And quickly, I was the salesman out there, and I was selling slings to all these cops and military dudes around around the planet. And that's it. That's the 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 equipment business. We we did well with what we had, and then there was another product that we added a belt, and then this, and then a knife, and then we've just slowly added as we've went. And it's um, part of the part of the reason I think that we've been successful is. We're not just making products to make products. We're trying to make products that solve a problem. So whether you look at how our slings works, and I've had other people say, you need to do this kind of sling. And I go, but I wouldn't use that sling. And they go, yeah, but you could sell a bunch of them. And I said, but you didn't understand. I wouldn't use that sling. If I don't use it, I'm not going to, we're not going to make it and sell it because I can't get, I can't put my name on it if I'm not going to use it. So everything that we make, I mean, I, I use or have used. Now we do have some products that I used and then we made a better version of that and we still sell the older version. You know, we got some belts that, you know, I've kind of upgraded from the battle belt um, to the skirmish belt because that's a better mousetrap. We like that. I like that belt better. And as a law enforcement guy or military guy, it works better. So I, I still recommend the battle belt for certain applications, but Anyway, that's kind of where we went. We've, uh, I wrote the first book kind of as a joke, I guess. And then the guy that I was playing the joke on, he's like, this is actually pretty good. You should publish this. So we did that. And now I've, I've written three, or I should we say we've published three. I've got a couple more books that are about ready for that step of the fate of the, uh, getting them out there too. So yeah, it's just fun. And I, I think, um, I can't see myself doing anything other than this. I do consult for some companies. So I do work with uh, 
SIG and SIG Academy. On the gun side, I work with Leupold Optics. On the uh, optics side, Kinshot, we do, we worked with them on their buffer systems, which are awesome. You know, and that's one of the products that a lot of people are like, oh, let me shoot your gun. They're like, oh, this thing's awesome. And I go, okay, well, you got to look at the trigger and the buffer. That's the only two things different on my gun from your gun is this buffer. And it's a hydraulic buffer, which takes a lot of the recoil out at the rear and when the bolt goes forward. So it just makes the gun smoother. And some of the guns that we shoot would be heavy recoiling when you put a suppressor on them. So that's, you know, that's a part that nobody really sees that the sling, you always see it and the light mounts and the belts and all that. But some of those hidden little gems inside of these guns are what make them a little bit easier to shoot too, and make them more reliable too. Once you start adding suppressors and getting heavier recoil, these guys that like to shoot 300 blackouts, um, that kin shot buffer is a, a lifesaver there. And we've worked with other companies along the way to develop products and then bring them to market. And then our services are no longer needed. And, and, you know, we've got to do some really, really cool stuff there. So yeah, it's been, kind it's been fun. Ride. It's been, Oh, and black rifle coffee. I almost forgot about them. I, those guys won't return my call. I call them all the time. Okay. They won't return my call. <laughs> so well, if you, hopefully if you, they're at least shipping you coffee no it, if you could put a word in for me uh no so let's talk about your most important product your beard bomber oil because you have quite the beard ah <laughs> uh, yeah yeah so let's talk yeah. about your beard bomb how yep. what what made you other than that magnificent beard that you have what made you go you know what what this company is missing is beard care. Okay, so I never said that. Okay, my Did buddy Ryan Kleckner. Yeah, Ryan Kleckner at Gun University said, "Hey, bro, we need to start a company that sells beard oil and beard balm, and we're going to call it Musket and Hatchet." And I was like, "Well, dude, that's awesome, Musket and Hatchet." That's just a great name. I mean, that's just a cool company name. And I'm like, yeah, man. So his his wife and my wife and he and I, we're, we started this company, Musket and Hatchet. And I got to tell you, that dude is, is a busy cat. So he's running Gun University. He's a lawyer. So he also does some lawyer stuff for some gun companies. And he come to me one day and he's like, dude, we can't, we can't do this anymore. I can't. This is just, I can't do it. And we weren't selling very much beard balm or beard oil either. So it's like you're putting time and effort into something that it's not like it's going to pay the bills. It's just, it was just kind of a fun thing to do. So he goes, so you can just have musket and hatchet and it's your company. And I was like, man, I don't need another company. I mean, if, if you're not going to do it with us, we're, we're not going to do it either. And I said, but we could, I guess we could just, take those products that we have left and just sell them on VTAC. So we, we took some of the product and we put it up on our website. And, and I guess that's the thing. If you, if you go to our website, there's a lot of dudes that, and maybe even a lot of the ladies that like VTAC gear might even have a beard. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of bearded dudes that visit our website. And if we were trying to make a house payment by selling beard balm, we couldn't do it. But it's kind of fun because the the you know we gave we gave this stuff some weird names, clandestine and three day pass and revolution and uh, oh uh, Pineland, you know, kind of pay tribute back to my SF days. 
it's kind of fun. And if you pick up one of those cans and you open it like clandestine, you're going to smell it and be like, I don't smell anything. Bingo. That's why it's called clandestine. You can't smell anything. Oh, Pineland. Oh, it smells like I'm in North Carolina. Bingo. There you go. Um, Three-day pass. It's like you're a private in the army and you're trying to go down to Bragg Boulevard and get laid. <laughs> there you go. It's the right, it's the right one that, you know, when you show it to your girlfriend or your wife, they go, Oh yeah, I like that. Well, there you go. You may not like it, but the ladies will. So that's where that came from. It's it was kind of a joke, but we we're selling enough of it now that we got to keep doing it. So I don't know if we're going to have any more flavors come out, but now you need to branch off into the big thing now is soap. It's funny. You should mention that. <laughs> I don't know if it is, but goat soap. Okay. You know anything about goat soap? I have, I know nothing about goat soap. So some people call me a goat because a lamb and a goat are closely related, I guess. But there's actually a dude that lives in our town that makes goat soap. That sounds awful. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you what, it's amazing. It's really, it's, it's actually really awesome stuff. I met him milk? at the, I don't know what it is, but it's made from something from a goat. It's like, I guess it's, don't you think you should well, check on these things? Well, it's, it's definitely made from milk. It's made from goat milk. And I think, I don't know. Now you got me wondering what well, the heck I'm That's what I'm saying. You might want to check with Exactly. Here. You might so, want to check so here's, these things. So here's what happens. I meet this guy at the dump. Okay. This dude walks up to me and he goes, how's it going, man? And I go, pretty good. Nice day here at the dump. I mean, what do you say to the dude at the dump, right? And he goes, yeah, um, I know who you are. And I was like, that's not a good... I was like, okay, well, I'm thinking this is going to go either really good or really bad. And I said, really? I said, well, who am I? And he goes, you're Kyle Lamb and you write for Guns and Ammo. And I said, bingo, you're right. So this went well. Okay. And I said, man, it's good to meet you. What's your name? And he's driving this old truck and he's dumping trash just like I am. Shake his hand, introduce himself. And I go... Oh, cool, man. Good to meet you. And he goes, yeah, man, I make goat soap. <laughs> and I was like, I bet you tell the ladies, all the ladies that, you know, hey, I make goat soap. So I come home and I told my wife, I said, I met a dude that makes goat soap. And she goes, well, did you get his name? And I said, well, I didn't get his name, but how many dudes can there be that make goat soap in, in Tennessee? Excuse me. Well, my wife comes home one day from the local market, and guess what she bought? Goat soap. That dude's goat soap. So I took goats, this goat soap, and I, I decided I would try to use it like beard, like, you know, for shaving. So I took a brush, and I don't have to shave much, just a little on the sides here, okay. you know, in the neck. So I took this brush, and I put this goat soap on, and I'm thinking, it doesn't smell bad, and it doesn't smell like something a chick would use. It just smells like soap, you know? So I used it. And I started shaving. I'm like, man, I think I might like the goat soap. So we've, we've actually been entertaining the idea of, of starting to sell that simply because the guy's a cool dude. I, I honestly, I don't, I don't even know his name. I know the name of his company, but he's the goat soap dude. And if, if we get ready to do it, we're going to do it with him. He doesn't know this yet. 
So maybe he'll watch his podcast and he'll say, oh, yeah, we can make some VTAC goat soap or something. But um, there's my goat soap story. I guess that was kind of a waste of time. But I, no, no, that's not a goat, at all. That's I, the goat soap story. I, I think that you would uh, – I, I really want you to look into what it's made out of, though, because I'm telling you, it, you could be rubbing a goat's inside of its butt on your face. You don't know. You don't know. No, I know it's not – I know it's not butt because it smells – It's it's something to do with milk. It's something like that, or it's either that or it's, well, I don't think they have lanolin. A, a, a goat doesn't have lanolin, do they? I, I don't even know what lanolin is, so. Lanolin is what you get from, from uh, wool. Oh, okay. And lan yeah, and lanolin's using a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the, the good, like, for example, let me, let me show you what every man should carry. <laughs> the dude wipe. Okay. So the dude wipe, I carry these because when I go hunting, and I'll tell you why originally I carried them. So whenever I go out hunting, I always would carry wet wipes because you're going to take a dump in the woods. And in the military, you do this too. But for hunting, especially, you, you take a dump in the woods, but then you'd also gut an animal. You got blood everywhere, and it's good for cleaning off your hands, which normally isn't a big deal. But if you're in Alaska and you don't clean your hands, they got these little bugs that will just, they will destroy you if you don't get all that blood off your hands. Wow. So I would carry little individually wrapped baby wipes. And I was like, these are awesome. And the other thing it does is if you carry them in your pocket, when it's time to take a dump, they're warm. They're not frozen because a lot of places that I hunt, they're frozen. And you don't want a frozen baby wipe on your butt, right? Right. Maybe you do. But I'm not a I'm not sadistic like that. Okay. I like to have right. a warm, wet wipe. <laughs> you can't believe we've treaded on taking care of your butt. Yeah, yeah, we cover everything in this podcast. So, <laughs> so now, so let's see here. I'm gonna I'm gonna probably make it make this. I'm gonna make it up about the dude wipe. Bottom line is there no alcohol in a dude wipe, and it's bigger because. Some of us, when we poop in the woods, it's like wiping axle grease on a pitcher window. And you know that that's hard to get off. You got a visual on that, didn't you? Okay. So, so you got the dude wipe. And I, I believe these have lanolin in them. And I can't tell on here if it does because this one's been in my pocket for a while. But um, anyway, dude wipes, they're bigger for those of you that like to actually clean your butt up and not just smear it around. And uh Anyway. I can see a I, I can see a crossover in your future. Dude wipes and VTAC. That's right. Dude wipes for the dudes that don't want to have axle grease on their pitcher window. There you go. So last but not least, Kyle, let's talk about <laughs> Stay in the Fight Foundation. Now, according to your website, the mission statement is it delivers time-sensitive funding for assistance with food, clothing, shelter, or health care needs to individuals that find themselves in an unexpected crisis, and you bridge the gap for a more permanent solution. Now, I think this goes back to almost your entire talk with me tonight about helping the person on your left and on your right. So uh, this, this is a great cause. Can you talk about it a little bit? Well, first of all, in order to get any funding from Stay in the Fight Foundation, you have to have a job. So that maybe that will offend some people, but it won't offend those that are working hard and have a job and they come up short. And the reason this came about was my wife had a severe back injury 
And within a week's time, she went from walking to unable to, well, she could still walk, but barely. She couldn't stand up straight and she was getting cut on one week from the day, eight days from the day that she went to the emergency room. So it was pretty severe. When we walked into the emergency or when we walked into the, into the hospital, the day of surgery, TRICARE wouldn't pay for it. They said, your insurance has been denied. So for a military guy who's always been able to get health care because it's, it's part of the job and thinking that once you retire, you're going to continue to get health care is pretty disturbing. So here's my wife who can't, who's in severe pain and is about to go in and get surgery. And they tell us this. And my wife looks at me and she says, go down to the truck and I've got a checkbook in the center console of my truck. So I go downstairs, I get the checkbook, I come up and I write a check to pay for her surgery. And then I had to go downstairs and pay another check for um, the uh, anesthesiologist and had to pay another check to the hospital. None of this is cheap. No. Thank, no. thank goodness we, we had some money at the time that we could do this. This was just a couple years ago. So when she comes out of this, she'd been on uh, painkillers for five days or six, less than a week. And she was jacked up for like two months because of those painkillers. I mean, she was in a dark place because of that. And when she came out of it, the first thing, you know, my son and I were like, what do we do? She's acting crazy. I mean, she's not mean. She's just like, leave me alone. Just, I, I don't want to talk to anybody. We're like, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on? You know? So when she comes out of it, she goes, we got to help people that, so that they don't have to go through this. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, I want to start, I want to start a foundation. I'm going, oh, here we go. Cause I've been down the road with a bunch of foundations and I've found a couple of them that are pretty good, but I've also found a bunch that are a bunch of self-serving, uh, self-righteous people that are getting a bunch of money and then they're not doing anything with it other than paying right. themselves. Right. Joe Biden. I mean, the, the list goes on of people that have done this, right? Um, he's just the most famous one that's done it. So I was like, mm, man, I don't know. And she goes, every bit of the money we take in is going to go to help people. There's no admin fees. Anything that's admin, anything like that will be paid for by Viking Tactics or by us personally. Okay, I'm listening now. You have to have a job. Okay, now I'm really listening. And then one of the things that that both of us were very adamant about was it could not be a veterans or law enforcement organization. It had to be for anybody that's a human being. Okay. Because I got to tell you, dude, I, I love cops and I love military people. And, and we have a lot of options right now. Like it, with, for, for military, there's military veterans organizations, then there's special operations veterans organizations. So I can go to all of these places. Law enforcement seems to have some pretty decent organizations too, but we feel like there was a, a lot of those organizations, but there wasn't any that are just like, there's a dude down the road that's your neighbor and that guy needs help. Let's help that guy. There's a lady that lives over here that's a school teacher and she can't meet her deductible for the surgery that her, or her husband has to have. Well, then let's, let's help them out. And it's a one-time thing. So we come in, we help them, and then we leave. And, if, and, and that's all we can do. We don't have enough money to do any more than that. Um, 
couple of I'm going to just tell you two two that have happened that really struck home for me. One was an SF guy that once again the military wouldn't pay for the uh, he was going through TBI treatment with a civilian organization and the military wouldn't pay for the supplements that he needed to for this treatment. He'd went to another organization that was for military, specifically for Green Berets, and he was he wasn't getting taken care of and he needed this supplement. Nothing against that organization, but for us, the approval process is Melinda. <laughs> That's it. There's right. one person. I mean, if I'm not here, she makes the decision. It uh, she she's got it. So I called her up. Yep, we're good to go. He sent in the the bill we sent we sent the money. We don't give the money to the person. We give it to where the bill has to be paid. That was one that happened. And then another one, we had uh, a military guy and his wife that contacted us and they've got a little boy that has uh, brain issues. And he, uh, he was either going to have to get his head cracked open. That's what the military was going to do or buy this $2,000 helmet that is used for the same kind of treatment. And we happened to have a, a, uh, one of our nieces sons that went through the same thing. The helmet is, is the good option because it's non-invasive, right? But the military wouldn't pay for the helmet. They would pay for invasive surgery, but they wouldn't pay for the helmet. So we were able to, and it was kind of not funny, but it was kind of ironic that we had run out of money because we're trying to, we're trying to help people. We're not trying to build up a bank account. So we had no money. We're like, oh, well, this is one we really want to help. And we got no money. So Kyle Melinda Lamb Foundation is going to pay for this one. The next morning, my wife went to get the mail. We got a check for $10,000. Um, that, uh, that was a pretty good day for us that somebody, actually it was a friend of mine, and he had decided to send us a check for, or for 10 grand. And we were able to pay for that little boy's helmet. And I mean, can you imagine if you're the mom and dad, think about, you know, when I was in the military, when I was like a E1, E2, you know, EIE, I owe you one, guess what? We, there's no way. $2,000, there's just no way. Right. When you're making, I mean, now they make more, but at the time, you know, my monthly paycheck was five or $600 a month. That's why I jumped out of airplanes because that was like $110. So of course I'm going to do that. Um, so that's what we've done. And that's, you know, we've, we've, uh, we have had some people that have tried to screw us and, you know, if we catch them great, if we don't, then I don't know what to tell you other than, I guess that's their, that's their problem, not ours, but overall it's been, it's been very good to be able to have somebody in need that we can quickly, you know, pay that bill to get them through whatever it might be. Um, you know, if it's somebody local here, to where we're at, if, if they need food, you know, that that's probably not going to be something we pay for. We're probably just going to load up a cooler of deer and elk and moose and get them squared away that way. Um, most people where I live are not so persnickety that they wouldn't eat wild game. Um, I know some people would frown on that, but whatever <laughs> we eat wild game about three or four days a week in our house. So that's what it is. That's a stay in the fight foundation. You know, we, we are very, very small. We could absolutely use anybody's help. Um, another thing happened during the COVID deal here. 
I started forging a little while ago and I've been forging some axes and tomahawks and some knives. And when I started doing this, my wife's like, so what are you going to do with all this stuff? And I go, I don't know. I just give it away to people or whatever. And then we started this foundation. She goes, well, you could use those and whatever you sell them for that could go towards the stay in the fight foundation. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Cause, and this is going to sound stupid, but after I'm done making something, I'm done with it. I've got for my brain, what I needed, which was taking this piece of metal and beating it into a knife or into a tomahawk and then putting handles on it or doing, and I'm doing some kind of cool stuff. Um, I've been doing some brass inlay stuff. Uh, the first one that I brass inlaid, I showed to Craig Morgan, who's a former military guy. He's a, a country music uh, superstar dude now. He probably wouldn't call himself a superstar, but he's a pretty big deal, you know? And I showed him that and he's like, dude, I want this. How much? And I said, it's not for sale. And it just, it floored him. He's like, what do you mean it's not for sale? Well, it's not for sale. So we did this podcast thing together and we get done. And I, I said, you know, for a sizable donation to the Stay in the Fight Foundation, this tomahawk could be yours. And he's like, okay. And he wrote a check and I'm not going to tell you how much he gave me for that tomahawk, but we got the better end of the deal. Uh, but it was awesome. You know, it was awesome. I was able to give him this piece of art, I guess, and it's something I made. And, uh, and he helped out a bunch of people. I mean, the money that he gave us uh, probably helped three or four different families. So, you know, it's a big deal. We've had some local dudes that same thing. And when I say make a sizable donation, that means different things to different people. For Craig Morgan, it means one thing. And for this guy down the road here, it means something else. And that's kind of up to them. I mean, I got a buddy of mine in Montana that he bought the very first dagger that I made. And then I was giving him a hard time about it. And he ended up buying, He bought, I take that back. He bought the first hidden tang dagger that I ever made. And then he bought the very first dagger that I ever made as well. So he bought two of them. Um, and he's like, no, I just think it'd be cool to have the first daggers that you made. And I'm like, and I think it'd be cool that you've given us this money and it's going to go to help people. Cause like I said, once I make the, once I make whatever I'm making, I'm done. I'm, I, that's my, uh, mental, uh, I don't know. It just, when I'm forging something, I don't think about anything, but making that today I was, uh, well, that's what I was about to say. When I talked to you today, that's where you were at, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually I started pretty early this morning. I started at, uh, five o'clock this morning, first call, that's Melinda's first call, normally like four 30 for her, but I get up like at five sometimes, but she, uh, she was already busy and I'm nursing a injury. So when she took off out the door one way, I went to the forge to work on some stuff and I put the handles on this fighter I've been working on. And then I was like, man, I got some other stuff to do. So I went around and did everything that I needed to do. I snuck back over there and I started doing some forge welding. And today's the very first day I've ever forge welded. And I broke, uh, I broke this part for this knife that I was making. It was a pretty sweet part. So I thought, well, I'll try to forge weld. So I worked on that. And I also forge welded a uh, um, high carbon bit into a, a tomahawk that I'm making. And it's the first one like that I've, that I've done. So I had a pretty fun day today because I just, it was a little depressing because some of the stuff didn't turn out quite like I wanted. But Man, it's so fun because even if it doesn't turn out, you get to go through the process of getting this piece of metal so hot that you can see through it almost, pulling it out, and you get to beat on it. And even if it's a failure, you got – I get what I want out of it was 
I take a piece of metal, I get to beat on it and make it into a different shape. And, you know, sometimes it turns out and sometimes it doesn't, but, uh, yeah, I got a really, uh, a really sick forged, uh, fighter. It's the first fighter of all the fighters that I've forged. That's actually going to be allowed to see the light of day. I had to make five of them. My wife said, you got to make five for me because the, you're, if you make the same thing over and over, you're going to get better at it. And I'm like, whatever. And sure enough, I made by the fifth, the one. first, yeah, the first one, it, I mean, they they all look like knives, but <laughs> barely. And the fifth one looks, I'm going to tell you, it looks awesome. So I'm excited about that. So it gives me something to do. I I've been also, I, I, uh, now I've been doing some other stuff too, but that's the, the main thing that I've been doing the, and I started doing some brass inlay on those. And like I said, you can't, um, you can't buy them, but you can get a, you can make a donation and I, and, and you can't place an order either. It just, when I get something done, it's first come first serve. And, uh, I will tell you this, I, I do have a special one I've been working on, um, for my buddy at black rifle coffee. Cause he's done some pretty cool stuff for us. I'm working on one that I'm, I'm making the handles out of uh, coffee bags. So the burlap mm -hmm. bags that you buy, that you get coffee in, uh, it'll be made out of a Black Rifle coffee burlap coffee bag. So I'm still waiting on them to get us. They got a new coffee bag that they're doing right now from some of their coffee they're bringing in from uh, Africa. And uh, it'll be kind of a cool deal. I hope that there's some parts on that that you can actually tell that it's a black rifle coffee bag, but they'll know anyway that I, when I make it, it'll be kind of cool. You making it for their coffee guy. I'm making it for Evan. He's a, yeah, he's a, a become a pretty good friend of mine. And, uh, I've known him the least amount of time of, of those three hooligans there, but Tom Davin, who used to be with five eleven, uh, he's, he's over there now as well. I used to do a lot of stuff with five eleven, but he's, he was the CEO at 5.11, and now he's like the assistant CEO at, at uh, Black Rifle Coffee, which means he's actually doing all the hard work, and Evan's doing all the, the fun stuff, I, I hope. <laughs> well, but, they're, yeah. uh, they're definitely killing it out there. That's for sure. Yeah, their roasting facility is about an hour and 25 minutes from us in Manchester, Tennessee, Coffee County, Tennessee, so that's kind of cool. Well, like I said... Um... You're kind of all over the place. So let's, let's start wrapping this up, Kyle. Uh, I want you first, uh, I want you to promote everything you have. I want you to talk about your books, Viking tactics, the stay in the fight foundation, just give a quick rundown of where people can find them. Of course, we'll put all the links on, uh, the show notes and, and on the page and, and on the Facebook group and everything. But if you would just kind of run down your list of, uh, where people can find you. Okay. So if you, you want any of that, you go to the vikingtactics.com and on the top you'll see products you'll see the podcast that i do called the team vtac podcast you'll see the stay in the fight foundation tab there as well that'll get you pretty much to any of the products any of the books uh and definitely the stay in the fight foundation the stay in the fight foundation is a 501c3 so if 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 you do want to make a donation and you need tax credit for that let us know and we can do that um, if you're interested in any of the knives or tomahawks, I don't know what to tell you because we have so far, we haven't put those out anywhere. It's just been 
I've been talking to somebody and I, and I, I'm sorry about that. I apologize. Maybe someday we'll get to the point where we can put something out and people can bid on it or I don't know how we're going to do that. But anyway, we also have a new knife that just came out with case uh, called the Kyle lamb hunter. It's part of their hero series. You can go to case and find those or go to Winkler knives. That's who we, who we designed that knife with. You can also go to, we've got knives as well on our website that, that I designed that are available. Um, SIG Academy, I'm teaching up there three or four classes a year. We haven't put the stuff on the schedule for next year yet, but keep watching the SIG Academy website and get in a class if you can. If you want me to come and do a class, uh, con go to our website, hit contact us, send us an email. We'll try to figure out if we can get something on the schedule. We're, we're pretty heavily booked already for next year, but we are booking 2022. So if uh, if you're interested in that, that's something you can look at. Um, you also can check out a couple seasons of Viking Chronicles are available on Amazon Prime. That's a show that we did, my show, where we traveled around and did some tactical stuff and killed some critters and had a lot of fun. It's 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 very lighthearted. It's not a serious thing. So if you're like a big serious tactical dude that wants to scare people, you probably won't enjoy it. If you're a hunter that, I don't know, you, if you're a hunter that likes to have fun, if you're like Fred Eichler, my bro that likes to just go hunting, I think you'll like the show. If you're real serious, don't watch it. Um, if you like to have fun, you, you could, you probably get a good laugh at it. Um, that's about it. I reckon I, I don't know if I've left anything out there. We're kind of, like you said, we're all over the map, but I think the reason that we're all over the map is that's kind of what my life is like. I, I don't do well if I have to sit down and do one thing. So I do like literally 20 different things every day. So when I get up in the morning, I start doing one thing and every hour I'm changing and doing something else. Some of that's because I got to put out fires because my wife is like, you must do these emails. Like today, she, tonight she said, I know you're going to be on this podcast. You got an hour do all your emails. So I got at least some of those done, but, uh, yeah, find me. I'm out there scatological bouncing off from, from light post to light post, but I have fun while I'm doing it. If, uh, one of the other things that we don't do a ton of, but we will do if people reach out to us, I have spoke at, at, uh, several churches, you know, if that's something you're listening to and you want us to you want us to help out there, we can do that too. Speaking of which, there is a um, a buddy of mine, the Righteous Duke, Duke Krieger. He has a podcast, and it's um, uh, the Misfit Toy Society. If you haven't listened to his podcast and you're, you're, you're having like a bad day, and you're like, man, what do I do when I'm having a bad day? Go listen to one of his podcasts, and it, it might enlighten you a little bit on uh, – it's it's pretty good. It's I'll tell you right up front. It's a Christian thing. So if if you're like, what in the world is that all about? You can go there and check it out. It's it's guys like us that are just kind of talking about some of our experiences there. Um, he's a great dude, and he's helped a lot of us. That um, a lot of guys that are contemplating making bad life or end of life decisions. He's been there for him with that podcast as well as just with his ability to talk us off the ledge. I would highly recommend checking out 
the righteous duke there. So that's uh, Misfit Toy Society. It looks like a joke because we don't take ourselves real serious, and uh, it, it, but it is a, it's a serious deal. So check that out if you get a chance. So that's I guess that's about all I got. I really appreciate you having me on here. And you know I, when I saw that you had old B Rad B Rad on Brad Thomas. That's what yeah. I call him is B Rad. He uh, he's a good dude. He we I've got some. I've got some great stories about that cat. He he and I have traveled around the world a little bit together. Good good man. I think he has one about you that uh, when you were over in Mogadishu that you were plunking uh, pigeons with maybe a pellet gun or something that was in the hangar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I killed some of them pigeons. They fell, these dead pigeons fell on these <laughs> sleeping rangers and they woke up with a, you know, I guess... A lot of guys, they like chop off the head of a donkey or something and put it in your bed, but I just would shoot pigeons and they would fall. You know, and the thing is, that main, I maintained that throughout my whole career. So I ended up in Iraq and we had, we had pigeon killing. I mean, like we'd go out and within a few days, we'd kill 100 pigeons and then we'd go to the chow hall. We'd get uh, jalapenos and uh, bacon and we'd wrap the wrap the breast with jalapeno and or put a piece of jalapeno in there, wrap it up and cook them on the grill and eat them. And, you know, it's not the greatest, but it's, it's not bad eating either, but yeah, we had a lot of fun killing pigeons. It's just good. I mean, some of the, some guys frown on you for hunting, but man, hunting is one of the best things that you can do to sharpen your skills for trying to go out and, and hunt people because man, killing a deer, killing some of these animals, it's, it's way harder to do that than it is to, hunt a person so if you can get good at that chasing down terrorists is i don't know it's i don't know it's a lot you don't you don't have remorse when you shoot a terrorist when you kill an animal you have remorse but when you shoot a terrorist i guess you don't we, we don't have that we had talked about trying to get sci to recognize the terrorist grand slam because they recognize like the turkey grand slam and the the slam with all the you know, all the different kinds of sheep that you could hunt. And we were like, if you had like a four terrorist slam, so like if you got a hybrid, you got one from Africa, you know, one from the Middle East, I mean, you could, it'd be kind of a cool thing for SCI to recognize that. And that way soldiers and Marines could get involved as well. Okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Come on, man. No, I you can't hey, take me serious. <laughs> no, no. I, I, uh, <laughs> I've heard crazier ideas. <laughs> anyway thank you so much for having me though yeah no problem so guys that's gonna be it for the show this week i was so looking forward to this conversation uh, uh you are such an inspiration you are one of those unsung heroes of america that that if people haven't heard about you they definitely need to check you out we're glad that you stopped by the podcast if you want to follow up with us guys you can find us at twitter at doublespeak dj at facebook at the dtd podcast and on youtube at the dtd podcast the facebook group you can join it be updated on all the shows that are coming out and of course you can find us on all podcast platforms anchor spotify all those different ones just remember Whatever you want to do in life, make sure that you do that deed. Thanks for joining us on the DTD podcast because the best stories are true. That's Kyle. I'm DJ. That's been the show. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. See you later.